0: reading from the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halakiah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands and statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant And to that of your servants who delight in revere your name, give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. The word of the
1: Lord. Well, good morning. morning. Uh, My name is Paul. I am the senior pastor here. It is a joy to begin this sermon series with you to enter into the fall together. I have not seen some of you in a few years. And I can't tell you the joy I experienced when you walked through our doors today. So let's prepare our hearts to hear from God's word by sharing in another brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray Come, Holy Spirit, come, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin today by asking this question. Do you enjoy reclamation projects? Do you enjoy reclamation projects? This past weekend, Carly and I had the joy of heading to Washington, D.C. for the wedding of our good friend and the good friend of one fellowship, Aaron Clifford. Now, having not been to D.C. in decades, we did not know what to expect. But I got to tell you, we loved our trip. Seriously, we loved it. Carly and I were able to uh, walk around and even scooter around. You can rent these little e-scooters all over the city. And we saw all the different monuments and landmarks. We were even able to visit the former home of our own, Jim and Kathy Amendolia, are you guys here again? I can't remember. Okay, they were here at the 9 a.m. We were even able to visit the home of Jim and Kathy, and uh, they, believe it or not, lived about half a mile from the Capitol building. And for those who don't know their story, Jim is a war hero. He's a highly decorated retired Marine officer, and yet that's for another time. Returning to our trip... We're able to see these things, but perhaps the most beautiful place we visited uh, was the U.S. National Arboretum. Has anyone ever visited the U.S. National Arboretum before? Of course you have, Leah. You're a creative. Listen, it's 446 acres of gardens and greenery, and it's stunning. As you walk its paths, the serenity just calms your heart. It it quiets your soul. You ever experienced that before? And the wild flowers seem to ripple like waves as you pass by. And it's here, friends, right in the middle of the Arboretum, sitting atop a grassy knoll, that you'll find 22 huge old Corinthian columns known as the National Arboretum Columns. Here's a picture of that setting, a place of both strength and grace. If you look closely, you actually see our friends getting married in the foreground of those columns. Not only did Erin and her husband look incredible last weekend, but the setting was incredible. And you know what? Visiting that place, I couldn't help but wonder, what's the story here? What's the story of these columns? So I did some digging. I talked to a couple people. I searched the interwebs. Can you guess where these columns once stood? The East Portico of the Capitol building in our nation's capital. Friends, they're total reclamation projects. Quarried from sandstone in Virginia, the columns were originally shipped, shaped, and placed at the Capitol building in 1828 before that big, iconic iron dome of the building was added to the Capitol building in 1864. Now get this, because of a design oversight, once the dome was added to the building, it appeared that the columns were too small in proportion to the dome. Little mis- little, just a little miscalculation. So plans were immediately made to replace the original columns. Still, it would take almost 100 years to deal with the Glitch. when finally in 1958, an addition was added to the Capitol building and these columns were removed and sent to a storage facility along the banks of the Anacostia River. There the columns would stay for a couple of decades, seemingly forgotten and thrown away. Until one day in the 1980s, a woman named Ethel Garrett would rally friends and have the columns reclaimed and resurrected at the National Arboretum. And that, friends, is the story behind the columns perched high in this grassy, beautiful knoll in D.C. How cool is that, right? Today, the columns stand as a testament to our nation's history, incredible artistry, and the power of one person to lead a reclamation project and make old things new again. So why do I share this story? I share it because God, like Ethel Garrett, loves great reclamation projects. Brandon, he loves to take that which is seemingly discarded, broken, and unusable, place it on a hill and say, those columns, those projects, those people, they belong to me and such is the story of Nehemiah over the next several weeks we're thrilled to begin this sermon series on this little tiny old testament book and discover all god has in store for us collectively and individually and beginning today i pray that you approach this time and this series with open minds and an open heart Asking God, how would you speak to me and how would you speak to us as a church? So let's dive into his word together. The big idea we're going to see from Nehemiah chapter one today is this. Despite the pain of your past, God has a purpose for your future in his story of redemption. Listen, friends, despite the pain of your past, God has a purpose for your story, Frank, in his story of redemption. And we'll unpack this through two points. Point one, we all have a past and pain. And point two, your prayers and position can change the world. So let's begin. Point one, we all have a past and pain. Beginning with verse one, the words of Nehemiah, son of Halakiah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned. Now, one fellowship, as we look at the Bible in this text, we know that to understand any text, you have to understand its context, right? So what's the backdrop or context of Nehemiah, this book? Well, I'd like to propose we begin with two words. You ready? People in place. People in place. First, people. In the Old Testament, God's whole plan was to choose and bless a people or a people group to bless the whole world. In the words that we see in Genesis 12 to Abraham, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Furthermore, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Friends, note how, God's word doesn't say he chose a certain people, Jack, because they were awesome, intelligent, beautiful, or strong. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, the scriptures say they were the fewest of all peoples. In essence, friends, they were outcasts. You see, God loves to choose misfits and outsiders to display his glory. Additionally, note how the Deuteronomy passage doesn't say, well, God loved them because they first loved him. It doesn't say that at all. It says the Lord chose them simply because that's where he chose to place his affection. You see, friends, it's as if God chose a ragtag group or people for the very purpose of displaying uh, that true goodness and true beauty and true love is not found in ourselves, but in the one who made us. Sure, we may reflect God's glory in unique ways, but friends, we're not the source of that glory. Got it? Thus, God chose a people to seed his blessing in the Old Testament, and that people was called the nation of Israel. Second place. To understand the key themes of the Old Testament, we must understand not only the importance of God's chosen people, but God's chosen place. And this is where people like Kenneth geek out. Everyone else, tune in with me. What do I mean by place? Well, as God led the Israelites through much trial and tribulation, he established them as a nation and he made covenants with them, promising to dwell with them. His very presence, wherever that might be, uh, was what where they would find their greatest good. And it was all about relationship. Thus, in the scriptures, we read that God spent time with the Israelites in, on certain mountaintops or in certain valleys. He spent time with them in the desert, in certain worship settings, such as the tabernacle. The goal, we read, was to establish them as a blessed people and root them in a blessed and eventually a permanent place from which they could dispense God's ultimate blessings across the globe. Again, think of the Abrahamic covenant I read earlier. So God led them to a place. He led the Israelites to a place called the promised land. He then fortified and governed them from a city called Jerusalem. And he then loved and guided them in a place called the temple. All was going well, amazingly well, until what? It wasn't. Why? Because as we sometimes say on our staff, humans are gonna human. And the Israelites became seduced, distracted, entangled with the world around them. To use a modern phrase, they gave their hearts away to another. Consequently, God said, you know what, Israelites, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you your freedom release you to your heart's desires and you'll have to just deal with the consequences, whatever that may be. And after that, we read, unfortunately, chaos ensues and there's disruption, division within the people of God. And that is where we find ourselves as we open the chapter one of the book of Nehemiah. To be specific, the people or the nation of Israel in the place Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. And the Israelites were in agony. First, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, you ever heard that name, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonians had overthrown the Israelites and taken them into captivity. Next, in 539 BC, the king of Persia, Cyrus, overthrew the Babylonian empire and then took control of all of Israel's land and people. Lucky for them, he was a little more gracious than Nebuchadnezzar, and he allowed some of them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Still, things were not well by the time of this book's writing, by the time of Nehemiah. The people of God had lost their way. And listen, they had lost their place, their place with God. And they desperately longed for his presence again. Now, I realize this is a lot of historical information, but stick with me as I'm about to bring it here into the room. Friends, it's in this context that we open this book recognizing the checkered path of the Israelites and Nehemiah received the following words. Quote, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble, in disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down. Its gates have been burned. And I'd like us to focus on one phrase, great trouble, great trouble. Have you ever been in great trouble? trouble before. According to my research, this word trouble means brokenness. It implies being smashed, injured, and absolutely shattered by one's circumstances. Again, let me ask, have you ever been in that kind of great trouble before? Maybe you're there right now. This is not talking about a little thing, Jack, like forgetting to turn in a homework assignment. It's it's talking about a big thing, like enduring a painful loss, hearing a, a, a painful truth, receiving a very painful diagnosis. Have you ever been so broken that your life feels like it's been shattered into a million different pieces? I know I have. It's not lost on me that today is 9-11. 21 years ago, a lot of people, good people, lost their lives. I don't know about you, but I'll never forget where I was when the attacks of 9-11 happened. I was at Reform Theological Seminary in Oviedo, Florida, and we watched on the news feed with horror as the second plane hit the South Tower. It shattered us. shattered me. In my first job out of college, I had been a municipal bonds trader and I knew people, several people. I talked to them daily from Cantor Fitzgerald, the investment firm. And that day, everyone who went to work at Cantor Fitzgerald died. Over 600 people. The scene, the news, it broke me. It broke a lot of us. It broke our nation. Do you remember that? Listen, when we read in our opening verses that the exiles of Israel felt great trouble, that's what we're meant to see and feel, that kind of loss. We're meant to relate to the deep, guttural, aching pain of the Israelites. The Bible does not sugarcoat our past or our pain, nor should we. Point one, we all have a past in pain. This moves us to point two your prayers and position can change the world. In the words of the late Mr. Rogers, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And friends, to whom does Nehemiah turn to in this time of need when he's crying out for help? He turns to God. When I heard these words, we read, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and all inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open, your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we've committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. In jumping down, he continues, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to, the, to that, uh, that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today. Grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And then it concludes, at the time I was the king's, Cutber, Davis—a lot to unpack there, right? First, do you know how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to feign helplessness in this moment? Listen, we read in our opening verses that Nehemiah was a servant in the Persian Empire in the city of Susa. Can you guess how far Susa was from Jerusalem? Roughly a thousand miles. Not my place, not my problem. He could have easily deferred to that. Moreover, in the ancient days, the the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were seen as one book. And do you know what the king of Persia had said to the Israelites in Ezra chapter four? He had instructed them to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem, listen, by use of force. That's what we read. Thus, any mention of rebuilding Jerusalem by Nehemiah would have put his very life at risk. Furthermore, Nehemiah was but a cupbearer, a cupbearer for a foreign king in a foreign land under foreign rule. Could he really make a difference? Have you ever wondered, can I really make an eternal difference? Listen, friends, this is important for us to hear. Under God's sovereign reign, all things are... Possible if you dare to believe and pray. One fellowship, listen, no one is ever too far, ever too lost, or ever too insignificant to be used by God. Please don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. It goes against the grain of scripture. So what do we see Nehemiah do? What did he do? In response to his pain in Israel's past, Nehemiah believed and he prayed. Greta, he prayed. He first acknowledged God's greatness and awesomeness, bowing his heart and his posture to the Lord. And that's where we need to begin. We need to begin our prayers with reverence and respect to the Lord. Next, Nehemiah cried and he confessed. And catch this. He not only confessed Israel's sin, he confessed his own sin and his family's sin. That's what faithful believers do. They or we seek to break generational curses and refuse, we refuse to play the blame game in the family of God. They or we see that we're all in this together. That's our call as the people of God. Third, and I love this, Nehemiah next shared the promises of God right back to God. In essence, he called God to remember. God, remember your promises, the promises you made to my forefathers. And he's quoting things like Deuteronomy 4 and other passages. And he's basically saying, Remember that grace and apply it to our lives today, you guys. God's intervention and in grace can change anything and everything. Do you believe that? Do we believe that as a church? Nehemiah knew the word of God, stood on the word of God and prayed the word of God. Remember God, remember your love, remember your forgiveness, remember your kindness, remember your grace. In fourth, and this is where we see radical boldness. Listen, what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah prayed for success. Isn't that wild? Nehemiah prayed for success. While we don't see it explicitly, if you just do a little research, do you know how much time Nehemiah and his friends spent in fasting and prayer between Nehemiah 1 and 2? Four months. Four months they spent in prayer and fasting. And guess what? In that four months, Nehemiah's convictions and call became so clear that he was willing to risk everything to see God's people in place restored. That's why he was able to pray with boldness. His heart through all that prayer and fasting had become God's heart. And it begs the question, what if we dared to do such a thing as people and as a church? What if we dared to fast and pray for our city, our city? our nation, and our church body, what success might be unleashed in us and through us to Charleston and beyond. Friends, your prayers in position can change the world. Believe that today. Now to wrap this up, I don't know about you, but this opening chapter has me fired up. It dares me to look up and it dares me to pray. It dares me to see that this life is not all about me and it dares me to do whatever it takes to rebuild God's people. Furthermore, listen, it dares us to look at the New Testament with fresh eyes and fresh hearts and be utterly captivated by Jesus. Through this series, yes, we'll see that Nehemiah's prayers are answered, and he does get to return to Jerusalem, spoiler alert, and help rebuild the city. However, as we read the New Testament, we come to discover that Nehemiah's prayers are ultimately answered in Jesus. More than anything else, they longed to dwell with the Lord yet again. And we crack open the New Testament and we read the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see it? We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said to them following his crucifixion and resurrection, and remember, I'm always, always with you to the end of the age. And in the words of the apostle Paul, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a story, what a hope, and what a God we serve. Friends, whoever you are, wherever you are in life today, hear this, despite the pain of your past, God has a purpose for your future in his story of redemption. That's what we're meant to see. And here's my question. This fall, would you dare to pray and fast with me and like Nehemiah, let the risk and investment of your life change the world? Me? Yeah, you. Us? Yeah, us. Specifically, would you pray and fast? And I'm serious. Be it a week, month, three months, or four months, that God would build or rebuild one fellowship to be a people reclaimed and set on fire in faith. And would you pray and fast that we would be able to secure a permanent place as a church by which we could extend God's love not only to the ends of Charleston, but to the ends of the earth. Yet again this week, we're sending Mel. Where's our lovely Mel? Missionary Mel, she's somewhere. She's singing. Anyway, she, there she is. She's going to Kenya. We're sending her back to Kenya this week. She's the first of many, we pray. In your life, the risk and investment through a kingdom orientation can change the world. That's our call. Would you dare to pray and fast? Believe it or not, our leadership is on a 90-day prayer and fast. That's a long time. I sent that out. I called for that our staff, and our core leaders, our board. And then I recognize that's a long time. But dare, dare we do such a thing? And my plea, my exhortation is for you to say, yes, like Nehemiah, use me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you that we can be honest and open about our pain and our past. And we, we come to you like misfits, needing your love. We need your grace. Meet us as we respond to this message in just a few minutes and just saturate us right where we are. Not only saturate us, would you call us to help build this people in this place, recognizing that no one is too far too lost or too insignificant to make a difference. Breathe faith in us. We pray for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.